All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 44, for November 2022. Laurel Hill's James Garfield Connections. National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. James Abram Garfield was the 20th president of the United States, a dark horse candidate in the 1880 election, and the only sitting member of the House to ever be elected to the highest office in the land. His time was short, and four months into his presidency, he was shot by a crazed office seeker in Washington. After lingering for ten weeks, he died in New Jersey. What are his Laurel Hill connections? Well, Philadelphia's Samuel Jackson Randall defeated Garfield for Speaker of the House three times before Garfield leapfrogged him to become president. University of Pennsylvania's Dr. David Hayes Agnew, probably the best surgeon in the country, was summoned to Garfield's bedside as a consultant after he was shot. Penn's Dr. Charles Karsner Mills testified against Garfield's assassin, Charles Guiteau, and then assisted in Guiteau's autopsy. And numerous Laurel Hill residents were involved in the grand unveiling of the Garfield statue in 1896. You have probably passed it dozens of times along Kelly Drive. All this and more in All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 44, Laurel Hill's James Garfield Connections. I have always been fascinated by presidential assassinations. I was born in Springfield, Illinois. I spent my first couple of years just a few blocks from Oak Ridge Cemetery, the final resting place of Abraham Lincoln. Family legend says that my great-grandfather, Adam Lex, a German-speaking immigrant who worked as a gravedigger at Oak Ridge, was one of the last eyewitnesses to the final opening of Lincoln's casket, 
before it was sunk beneath tons of concrete. A couple of years ago, I did a YouTube presentation called The Wound That Killed Lincoln. It has been viewed nearly 5,000 times. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing on that horrid day in November 1963 when John F. Kennedy was shot. I was a junior in high school. After we were let out early, I spent Saturday just walking into days for many hours. When I did my residency in emergency medicine at Jefferson from 1986 to 1989, I used what spare time I had to dig through old medical journals in those pre-computer days where my main guide to the literature was the annual Index Medicus and the massive card catalog. I developed a talk called Gunshot Wounds in Four Presidents. I must have given it dozens of times over the years, including at the Mutter Museum and the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. James Garfield had always fascinated me, a well-educated man who had been born in a log cabin and served in the Civil War. He quit his commission and ran for Congress upon the recommendation of Abraham Lincoln. He would entertain friends with a parlor trick of writing Greek with his right hand and Latin with his left at the same time. Yet, if he is remembered for anything today, it is that he was shot by a disappointed office seeker. Garfield had no direct Philadelphia connections, but he interacted with numerous Philadelphians throughout his political career. I want to talk about people interred at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West whose lives intersected with Garfield, both pre-mortem and post-mortem. Welcome to All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 44, Laurel Hill's James Garfield Connections. Since this podcast is not about James Garfield directly, but about Laurel Hill people with connections to him, I will talk about the president only in passing. If you know his story, you might want to skip the next five minutes or so. And as I said before, Wikipedia has a more than adequate write-up if you want more information. James Abram Garfield was the youngest of five children born in a log cabin in Ohio. His ancestors had been in this country for about two centuries. His father, Abram Garfield, was from New York, and he moved to Ohio to woo a childhood sweetheart, Mahidabel Ballou. But he found Mahidabel had married, so he wed her sister, Eliza Ballou, instead. His father died when James was two years old. Growing up very close to his mother, James became a voracious reader. He attended Gayuga Seminary from 1848 to 1850, where he excelled in languages and elocution. From 1851 to 1854, he attended the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, and he studied Latin and Greek. He then enrolled at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, as a third-year student, and he graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1856. That was the same year that he campaigned for the first Republican candidate, John Fremont. He married Lucretia Rudolph in 1858. He was 27, she was 26. He studied law and was admitted to the bar in 1861. Garfield's first political appointment was in 1860, when he was elected to fill an empty seat in the state senate. After the war started, he joined the Union Army, and he received a commission as colonel in the 42nd Ohio Infantry Regiment. 
His unit was assigned to the Army of the Ohio under Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell. At the Battle of Middle Creek on 9 January 1862, Garfield personally commanded his troops to victory and was soon promoted to Brigadier General. By January of 1863, Garfield was Chief of Staff to Major General William S. Rosecrans, who called him, quote, the first well-read person in the Army, end quote. While serving in the Army, Garfield allowed his friends to talk him into running for Congress. He supported Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and marveled at, quote, the strange phenomenon in the world's history when a second-rate Illinois lawyer is the instrument to utter words which shall form an epoch memorable in all future ages. Later, Garfield also supported black suffrage. He thought about retiring to practice law in 1876, but was re-elected to Congress. In June of 1880, Garfield went to the Republican Convention in Chicago expecting to see President U.S. Grant reluctantly chosen to run for a third term. Grant's chief competition came from Senator James G. Blaine of Maine. The nominating process was a long, tedious one, finally being decided in the 36th round of voting. Grant carried a consistent number of votes, somewhere between 302 and 316, through all 36 rounds of voting but 379 votes were needed to secure the nomination. Runner-up James Blaine got a 270 to 280 vote count throughout the 34th round. In the first 33 rounds, Garfield gathered a total of 42 votes. One vote here, two votes there. But the 34th round found Garfield getting 17 votes, now enough for fifth place. 35th round, he got 50 votes, and that moved him to fourth place. And then, in the 36th round, a majority of Blaine's supporters deserted him and tossed their weight behind Garfield, who suddenly had 399 votes to Grant's 306. James Abram Garfield was now the Republicans' candidate for the presidency. With Chester Arthur of New York as his running mate, Garfield took on another Civil War general, Winfield Scott Hancock of Norristown, Pennsylvania, for the presidency. The North went Republican, and the South went Democratic. Of the 9.2 million votes cast that November, less than 2,000 separated the two candidates. But in the Electoral College, Garfield had the upper hand and defeated Hancock 214 to 155. James Abrams Garfield thus became the only sitting member of the House to be elected president. He took office on 4 March 1881. More about Garfield in a few minutes. Samuel Jackson Randall, 1828-1890. Sometimes American democracy survives not because of laws or political parties, which often fail us, but because of the decision of a single person during a time of crisis. During Reconstruction, from 1865 to 1877, there was a gradual shift in the leadership of the United States government. 
assassinated President Abraham Lincoln was succeeded by Democrat Andrew Johnson, who was followed by Republicans Ulysses S. Grant from 1869 to 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes, who lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College, and James Abram Garfield, assassinated only months after taking office. Republicans controlled the Senate during this whole period, but the House, which had been controlled by Republicans from 1865 to 1875, flipped to the Democrats from 1875 to 1881. For five of those six years, the Speaker of the House was Philadelphian Samuel Jackson Randall. He was elected to Congress for the first time in 1862, the same year as Republican Ohio Congressman James Garfield. Elected every two years after that until 1888, Randall was the only prominent Democrat continuously on the national scene during that quarter century. Sam Randall was elected as Speaker just after the 1876 election, and he presided through the turmoil before compromises were made to put Rutherford Hayes into office. It was Samuel Jackson Randall who essentially ended Reconstruction. And in 1880, he was considered as a strong candidate to run against Garfield for the presidency. Randall was born in Philadelphia to Josiah, 1788-1866, and Anne Worrell Randall, 1796-1880. They are buried at Laurel Hill East in Section 6. Josiah was a leading Philadelphia lawyer who had served in the state legislature during the 1820s. He was a Whig, but he drifted into the Democratic Party after dissolution of the Whigs in the 1850s. Josiah had been Bishop Henry Conwell's lawyer during the little-remembered Hogan Schism of 1820 to 1829, when a Roman Catholic parish priest was excommunicated by Philadelphia's bishop. Indirectly, this led to the nativist riots of 1844. I will cover it more when I do a podcast on the nativist riots sometime in the future, because it has so many Laurel Hill connections. Josiah's father, Matthew Randall, was a judge on the Pennsylvania Courts of Common Pleas and Prothonotary. His maternal grandfather, Joseph Worrell, was active in the Democratic Party during the Jefferson administration. The Randall family lived at 7th and Walnut when Samuel was born. Three brothers followed. He was educated at the University Academy, the prep school affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. It was just three blocks away at 4th and Market. After graduating at 17, he did not follow his father into law, but he took a job as a bookkeeper with a silk merchant. Then he started a coal delivery service and at age 21 became a partner in the scrap iron business under the name of Earp and Randall. At age 23, Samuel married Fanny Agnes Ward, whose father, Aaron Ward, was a major general in the New York militia and had served in Congress as a Jacksonian Democrat for several terms between 1825 and 1843. Sam and Fanny had three children. In 1852, at age 24, Sam Randall was elected to the Philadelphia Common Council as an American Whig. 
He was elected four years in a row, so he served through the 1854 consolidation when every community, village, and borough in Philadelphia County was incorporated into the city of Philadelphia. As the Whig Party fell apart, Randall and his family became Democrats. Josiah was friendly with Democrat James Buchanan from Lancaster and worked for his nomination to the presidency at the 1856 convention in Cincinnati. The Republicans were meeting at Music Hall in Philadelphia. For more about the election of 1856, eh, become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and listen to the members-only podcast about John W. Forney, who's interred at Laurel Hill West. In 1858, Randall was elected to finish the state senate term of Charles B. Penrose, interred at Laurel Hill East, and grandfather to all those Penrose brothers I talked about in the podcast, Boys Will Be Boys. Samuel J. Randall was 30 years old. During his time at the state senate, he brought many trains, what we would now call trolleys, to his center city district. When Sam Randall ran for re-election to the state Senate in 1860, he was defeated. With the onset of war in 1861, Sam, now aged 33, joined the first city troop as a private. But he saw no battle action during his 90-day enlistment. He ran for the United States House of Representatives in 1862, and he was elected from the 1st Congressional District. That was the one of five city districts that had been gerrymandered to include as many Democrats as possible. He defeated former Mayor Richard Vaux, Laurel Hill East Section 4, for the nomination, and then he won easily over his Republican opponent, Edward G. Webb. Despite being elected in November 1862, Sam would not report for duty until the 38th Congress reconvened in December 1863. Thus, when Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia invaded Pennsylvania in June, Sam re-enlisted with the first city troop. This time, he was elected captain. The troop were sent to central Pennsylvania, but again, he did not encounter the enemy. While the Senate has remained in constant existence since its first session in 1789, the House technically goes out of existence every two years. Therefore, each session of the House has a separate number, while the Senate does not. Depending on when you listen to this podcast, the 117th United States Congress will end, or did end, on 3 January 2023. Randall arrived in Washington in 1863 to a Congress dominated by Republicans. He had little opportunity to author legislation. But even the members of the opposition recognized Sam as a hard-working, conscientious member. James G. Blaine, Republican Maine, also elected in 1862, recalled that Sam was a strong partisan with many elements of leadership. He never neglects his public duties and never forgets the interests of the Democratic Party. As a war Democrat, he occasionally found reasons to side with his Republican colleagues. For instance, he voted in favor of promoting Ulysses S. Grant to lieutenant general, but he opposed the proposal that allowed black men to serve in the Union Army. 
In the post-war period, he strictly contested most Republican proposed measures. Randall spoke against the 13th Amendment, which would abolish slavery. He was not pro-slavery, but he believed changes to the Constitution would lead to too many amendments in the future. It was ratified over his objections in December 1865. He supported President Andrew Johnson's policies for Reconstruction, which were far more lenient than those of the Republican majority in Congress. In 1867, Sam Randall led a 16-hour filibuster against a Republican proposal that Southerners who wished to vote or hold office had to take an ironclad oath they had never borne arms against the United States. Uh, Despite his opposition, that measure did pass. And when the House determined to impeach Andrew Johnson, Randall became one of Johnson's leading defenders. His efforts were, of course, unsuccessful, as the House voted 128 to 47 to impeach. Johnson was not convicted after his Senate trial. Randall protected the interests of the manufacturers in his district, and he was re-elected for 12 terms. He had a sharp tongue and a high-pitched voice which approached a shrill screech in moments of excitement. When Republican Ulysses S. Grant was elected president in 1868, the 41st Congress was just as Republican-dominated as before, and Randall remained in the minority. He served on the Banking and Currency Committee, formed in 1865, and he focused his efforts on financial matters. He fought against the power of banks, and even though he believed in gold-backed dollars, he was friendly to greenbacks. He also believed the government should sell its bonds directly to the public, rather than to banks which resold them at a profit. He worked with Republicans to shift the source of federal funds from taxes to tariffs, and he worked to end taxation on coffee, tea, cigars, and matches, which he said fell disproportionately to the poor. Randall spent much of his time scrutinizing the Republicans' appropriation bills and was in the thick of the investigation of the Credit Mobilier scandal. The Union Pacific Railroad bankrupted itself by overpaying its construction company the Credit Mobilier of America, which was owned by the railroad's principal shareholders, including several congressmen who had been allowed to purchase shares at discount rates. Sam actually sought to impeach Vice President Schuyler Colfax, who had been implicated in the fraud. Sam Randall was on the wrong side of legislation on the last day of the term of the 42nd Congress. They passed a retroactive pay increase of 50%, backdated to the beginning of the term. In what was called the Salary Grab Act, Randall defended his vote, saying that the increased salary would give the members of Congress enough money to put them beyond temptation. The incoming 43rd Congress repealed the law almost immediately. And Randall backpedaled, and he voted for the repeal. Republican corruption under Grant led voters to reevaluate their party loyalties. And as Democrats took control of the House in 1875, Sam Randall was one of the candidates for Speaker of the House. 
But that position went to Michael C. Kerr of Indiana. Even though Kerr's health sometimes kept him from presiding, Randall refused to take his place as temporary speaker. Randall and Kerr worked together on Democratic causes throughout the centennial year. But Kerr died of tuberculosis in August, before the election. So when Congress returned to Washington on December 2nd, Sam Randall was elected as Speaker of the 44th Congress with 162 votes over Republican candidate James A. Garfield of Ohio, who received 82 votes. It was just in time to face the most contentious presidential election in the country's first century. After the 1876 votes were counted, Democrat Samuel Jones Tilden, governor of New York, had a lead of 250,000 in the popular vote and 184 electoral votes, just shy of the 185 that he needed for victory. Republican Rutherford Burchard Hayes, former member of the House and present governor of Ohio, had 163 electoral votes. The 22 electoral votes yet to be determined were from South Carolina, Louisiana, Oregon, and Florida. The Presidential Succession Act of 1792 provided for succession after the president and vice president. Next in line was the president pro tempore of the Senate, followed by the Speaker of the House. But Ulysses Grant's vice president, Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, had died in 1875. If a winner for the presidency could not be agreed upon by Inauguration Day on March 4th, the office would be assumed by President Pro Tempore of the Senate, Thomas W. Ferry of Michigan. As Speaker of the House, Sam Randall of Philadelphia was second in line to the U.S. presidency. The Presidential Succession Act of 1947 switched the order of succession. So now, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is second in line behind Vice President Kamala Harris. Each of the four states with a contested vote count submitted two sets of returns, one signed by Democratic officials, the other by Republicans. Each side claimed victory and prepared for inauguration of their man. Upon becoming Speaker, Randall had pledged, quote, absolute fairness to both sides in exercising the parliamentary powers of the chair, end quote. Randall refused to allow members of his party to filibuster the vote count, which they sought to do by producing yet another competing set of electors, this time from Vermont. When Randall rejected these efforts, one of his fellow Democrats tried to physically attack him, and others began reaching for their guns. Randall called the sergeant-at-arms to restore order. With his decisive action in resolving the disputed election of 1876, he kept that promise to be fair, even when doing so required decisions that were not in his party's interest. Leaders of both parties met before Inauguration Day in a last-minute push to prevent what they anticipated would be anarchy and bloodshed caused by an undecided election. Republicans promised that in exchange for Democratic acquiescence, President Hayes would order federal troops to withdraw from the South 
essentially ending Reconstruction and changing the course of American history. Randall had allowed the other side to win to prevent chaos and perhaps another civil war. On March 2, 1877, two days before the inauguration, the United States of America found out their next president would be Republican Rutherford B. Hayes. Sam Randall was re-elected as Speaker of the House for the 45th Congress in 1877, defeating Garfield 149 to 132, and for the 46th Congress in 1879, again beating Garfield, this time 144 to 125. But by the time of the 47th Congress, Garfield had been elected president, and the House had reverted to a Republican majority. Sam Randall was defeated by a vote of 148 to 129. Now for the 1880 elections, the Republicans gathered in Chicago in early June and they selected the Dark Horse Representative James A. Garfield of Ohio as their candidate on the 36th ballot, defeating President Grant who was seeking a third term. A few weeks later in Cincinnati, the Democrats convened to select their candidate. Norristown's General Winfield Scott Hancock led for two rounds before being selected unanimously in the third round. But Philadelphia's Sam Randall gathered six votes in the first round and actually rose to second place in the balloting with 128.5 votes in the second round. Again, he was in a close-but-no-cigar position for the presidency. And when Democrats gathered in Chicago for the 1884 Democratic Convention, Sam Randall was again an early contender with 78 votes in the first round. But Grover Cleveland secured the nomination after the second round of voting. Randall's influence in the House started to wane in the 1880s. And by 1888, the New York Times was calling this longtime Democrat a, quote, practical Republican, end quote. His health began to decline, and when the 51st Congress convened in December 1889, Randall was sworn into office from his bed. On 13 April 1890, Samuel Jackson Randall died of colon cancer in his Washington home at 120 C Street Southeast. He was 61 years old. All flags in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia were lowered to half-mast. His Philadelphia home was at 8301 Shawnee in Chestnut Hill, just a block off Germantown Avenue near what is now Pastorius Park. After service at Trinity Presbyterian Church, Sam Randall was interred at Laurel Hill East in the South, Section 14, Plots 328, 330, and 332. Sam Randall was the face and the voice of the Democratic Party for more than 20 years during one of the most turbulent periods of American history. One obituary damned him with fate praise, saying, Not a great scholar, nor a great orator, nor a great writer. Samuel J. Randall was nevertheless a man of sterling common sense, quick perceptions, great courage, broad views, and extraordinary capacity for work. 
In the early 1950s, the University of Pennsylvania published a catalog of an exhibition on Benjamin Franklin, and they sent a copy to Mrs. Susan R. Bacon of Goshen, New York. She had been assistant to the university's librarian in 1903 when they acquired the Franklin Papers. Mrs. Bacon came to the exhibit, and she mentioned that she was the daughter of Samuel J. Randall, and she still had his papers in Goshen. She negotiated with the library, and soon 14 large wooden cases of Randall's papers made it to Penn, where they remain to this day. This rich source of material awaits an eager scholar to write Randall's definitive biography. After all, Samuel Jackson Randall probably changed the course of American history. David Hayes Agnew, M.D., 1818-1892. On the morning of 2 July, 1881, President James A. Garfield was injured by a bullet fired from a gun brandished by Charles Guiteau, a man who felt he had been wronged in his pursuit of a plum position with the new administration. A first bullet grazed his right arm harmlessly but a second bullet struck him in the right side at the level of the 11th rib. The president sank to the floor and was carried to a nearby office where he vomited. Garfield's personal physician, Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss, yes, his first name was Doctor, was summoned and immediately took charge. The president was immediately removed to the White House. He was pale with a rapid weak pulse and cold extremities. It was thought that he was hemorrhaging internally and that he was dying. Other local doctors were summoned who took turns probing the wound with their unwashed fingers. When the president survived through the initial examination, he was given injections of morphine to keep him comfortable, and Dr. Bliss decided that he needed outside help. He summoned to Garfield's bedside the man considered the outstanding surgeon in the United States, Dr. David Hayes Agnew from the University of Pennsylvania, who arrived on the morning of July 4th. Agnew's reputation came through many years of meticulous practice of both the science and the art of surgery. His knowledge of anatomy was so accurate that he never seemed to even think about it. His bedside manner with patients and consultants was praised by all. Where did this giant in his field come from, and what happened before and after he cared for President Garfield? David Hayes Agnew was born in 1818 to Robert Agnew, a graduate of Dickinson College, a surgeon of note, and an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and his mother, Agnes Noble Agnew. Both were of Scotch-Irish descent and lived in Lancaster County. David was born in Christiana. He received his early education at Jefferson College, Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, which was the stronghold of Presbyterianism, and then at Newark College in Delaware. He then attended the medical department of the University of Pennsylvania, graduating in 1838, and then practiced in Lancaster and Chester County for three years. He called this a time of, quote, hard writing, hard reading, hard working, small fees. He played the violin, followed the hounds, 
loved and trained dogs and horses, and was known throughout the countryside as a dead shot and a judge of horses. He married Margaret Creighton Irwin, whose family was in the iron business, and he was persuaded to change careers from medicine to iron master. But the business failed, and he settled into the practice of medicine in Cochranville, Chester County, Pennsylvania. As in his student days, Agnew was voraciously interested in anatomy, and he made deals with people in Philadelphia to supply him with bodies for dissection. Agnew depended on the resurrectionists, also known as body snatchers, grave robbers, ghouls, and buzzards. Grave robbing for dissectable corpses had been an open secret in the Philadelphia medical community from as early as 1765, when William Shippen, first professor of anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania, was the target of protests. Poor and black Philadelphians were acutely aware of the risks of burial in an unguarded cemetery. Since Philadelphia was the center of medical education in the country, the grave robbing racket was internationally notorious. Prior to 1835, the Philadelphia City Almhouse was located at 11th and Spruce Streets. That was near Penn's second campus at 9th and Market Street. In 1832, the Philadelphia Hospital, also known as the Blockley Alms House, was built in West Philadelphia with its expansive grounds encompassing much of the southern portion of today's Penn's campus. With the closure of the Central City Alms House in 1835, Blockley became the city's almshouse. There were two potter's fields at the Blockley Alms House. A large one was located underneath what is now Franklin Field and surrounding streets. It was to be the final resting place for indigents unable to negotiate burial elsewhere or whose bodies were unclaimed by relatives. Corruption by staff and physicians of the almshouse made the traffic in dead bodies possible, earning their board of directors, also called the Guardians of the Poor, the moniker the Board of Buzzards. Bodies interred at cemeteries favored by the wealthy and middle-class Philadelphians, such as Laurel Hill and Woodlands, rested undisturbed. Due to racial segregation imposed in Philadelphia cemeteries through the 1870s, the black community created its own cemeteries. For example, Bethel Burial Ground in South Philadelphia, and Olive Cemetery in West Philadelphia. The African Friends to Harmony Burial Ground at 41st and Chestnut Street, supported by an African-American Mutual Aid Society, served as a burial ground for the poorest African-Americans, entailing no or nominal cost to the families of the deceased. Among black Philadelphians, the almshouse had, quote, a great reputation for this thing, dissection, among the Negroes of the city. They believe firmly that when they go to the hospital, they need never expect to come back alive. In consequence, it is only as a last resort that they apply for admission to this institution. The Philadelphia Anatomy Act of 1883 made more cadavers legally available for dissection and increased punishments for body snatching, which largely ended the theft from private cemeteries. 
But many remains from the almshouse were kept as specimens long beyond the closure of a dissection course, and many former residents of Blockley are listed in the inventories of 19th century anatomical and pathological collections in the city, including the Wistar and Horner Anatomical Collection, the Mutter Museum, and the Academy of Natural Sciences. I discussed skull collector Dr. Samuel George Morton, who was resident almshouse physician in the 1830s, in an earlier podcast, Bad Science. Agnew dissected his cadavers away from the city in his Chester County home. He would put the bones in a local pond so that eels would clean off the soft tissues. Neighbors became horrified when they found out as the eels were a popular food at this time. Agnew saw it was time to get back to the big city and he came back to Philadelphia in 1852 where he lived at 16 North 11th Street. He was 34 years old. He had become so confident of his anatomic skills that he purchased a school of anatomy for $600, which was immediately popular among Philadelphia's medical students. By the time he sold it in 1863, he was teaching 267 students from all 34 states. It was the world's largest private class under an individual teacher. The next year, he was elected surgeon to the Wills Eye Hospital. During the Civil War, Agnew served as consulting surgeon to the Maurer Hospital in Chestnut Hill, where at times there were as many as 5,000 patients. He served as a battlefield surgeon at Gettysburg. Agnew acquired a reputation as the world's expert on gunshot wounds. During his 10 years in charge of the anatomical school, he delivered more than 1,800 lectures and always seemed to have an adequate supply of cadavers. Sometimes if a resurrectionist was not available, Agnew would do the retrieval himself, propping the corpse up in the buggy next to him as he drove back to his laboratory. Joseph Lighty appointed him as a demonstrator of anatomy, a position he held for seven years. Finally, after 31 years of medical practice and mastering the human anatomy unlike nearly anyone before or after him, he was made Professor of Clinical and Demonstrative Surgery in 1870. He was 52 years old. And a year later, in 1871, he was given the first endowed chair of surgery in the country the John Ray Barton Professor of the Principles and Practices of Surgery. It's a position that he held for the next 18 years. John Ray Barton, after whom the Barton's fracture is named, is interred at Laurel Hill East in the shrubbery section. In 1867, Agnew had moved to 1611 Chestnut Street. He was elected president of the Philadelphia County Medical Society in 1872, and the Pennsylvania State Society in 1877. Students adored him. He was a no-nonsense instructor who had taught himself to perform surgery with either hand. He was eminently practical without any attempt at oratory or dramatic effect. He was quick to perceive the practical value of antisepsis, which had been introduced by Joseph Lister in 1854. As a consultant, 
His manners and his methods were stamped by his keen, thorough insight into the disease and his kindness of heart, which inspired the confidence of both the patient and the attending physician. There was never an attempt to glorify his own services by deprecating those of others. Dr. Silas Ware Mitchell, the Dean of American Neurologists, admirably called him the doctor's doctor. He remained true to his religion and never operated on the Sabbath except in accident cases. But as a man of his times, he believed that a woman's place was in the home and that her education should be confined to reading, writing, arithmetic, and housekeeping. He was so opposed to female medical students that he resigned from the Pennsylvania hospital staff rather than have a woman attend his lectures. When President Garfield was shot, Agnew was recognized as the preeminent surgeon in the country, and he was summoned almost immediately. As complications developed in the dying president, it was Agnew who took knife in hand to relieve the pus burrowing throughout Garfield's body. Unlike other physicians involved in the president's care, Agnew accepted no money for his advice and care. There are a couple of decent documentaries on YouTube about the Garfield assassination, including one from the American Experience and another one called Insanity on Trial. Agnew's Principles and Practice of Surgery was the standard surgical textbook for many years, written in much the same manner that he lectured, simple, clear, and useful. He was so honest that he often failed to see the intrigues of others. And, unlike many surgeons, he knew when it was appropriate not to cut. In 1886, he and his wife moved for the last time to 1601 Walnut Street. It was in 1889 that Agnew, now 70, decided to retire. As a gift to him, members of the medical school class of 1889 collected $750 from master painter Thomas Eakins to do a three-quarter portrait of Dr. Agnew. Eakins, still smarting over the general rejection of his earlier painting, The Gross Clinic, decided to outdo himself, and instead of a simple portrait, he did a massive 7-foot by 11-foot painting of Agnew in the operating theater with surgical assistance and three rows of medical students in the seats behind him observing the procedure. This is the painting currently on long-term loan to the Philadelphia Museum of Art from the University of Pennsylvania. Of the 31 men and one woman in the painting, not including the patient who is unknown, four of the physicians, including Agnew, are interred at Laurel Hill West and three at Laurel Hill East, including the anesthetist, red-headed Elwood Kirby, himself the intended victim of grave robbers after his death in 1935. If you have been on our annual Soul Crawl tours, you may have heard the plight of Dr. Kirby. At his retirement celebration, Dr. David Hayes Agnew listened to glowing testimonials from many of his compatriots and students. His response was simple. I have striven to do my duty and have never turned from what I knew to be right. My account I must give to God. 
He lived only three years after his retirement, dying from a heart attack and uremia on 22 March 1892. His wife outlived him by only three years. They had no children. His final resting place is in a modest mausoleum in the Ashland section. He's not far from Hatter, John B. Stetson, Titanic survivor William E. Carter, and philanthropist William Irvine, who left his estate to the University of Pennsylvania for a chair in mining and metallurgy or an auditorium. You know which one they chose, and I will probably tell that story one day also. Dr. David Hayes Agnew acknowledged at his time as the greatest surgeon in the United States. Rests at Laurel Hill West. Okay, let's take a break for a few minutes from the podcast. I'm going to ask you again as a favor to please give me a review, especially at Apple Podcasts. That seems to be where most of my downloads come from. And they have a way for you to write a review and leave a star system. So far, I've got all five stars, but there's just not that many of them. I I have fewer than 30 star reviews and then only four or five written reviews, all of which are good. And they, they all sound like they're from people that I know. So if you do like what you hear on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories or Biographical Bites from Bala, help me get a few more listeners for it. All of it is for the good of the cemetery. I don't get a penny for this. I I do this because I love doing it. When I retired a few years ago, I realized how much I missed research and teaching, and this presented a perfect opportunity to combine research and teaching into something that I love So, help me along. Tell a friend, as they say. Tell a friend. You can get in touch with me, if you like, also. Joe at joelex.net if you have any suggestions for me. Don't forget that Christmas is coming up, and a membership to Friends of Laurel Hill is an excellent gift for friends. For a reasonable amount of money, you can buy them a membership, which means they can get discounts, on upcoming tours. They can get discounts in the gift shop at Laurel Hill East. They will get special tours that are not announced outside of the Friends group. There is a yearly get-together at the conservatory, and twice a year you get a members-only podcast from yours truly. I've done three of those so far, and I'm looking forward to the next one for 2023. Okay, what's coming up at the cemetery for you? There are some special tours. Uh, Laura Lewis is doing an accessible hotspots and storied plots tour at East on Saturday, November 5th at 10 a.m. That is a tour that stays on the paved road only. So if you or a friend is in a wheelchair or has a scooter or doesn't want to take a chance walking across open ground, That is the perfect opportunity to see what Laurel Hill is all about. There's a special tour called Surviving Widowhood on Sunday, November 13th. Marty Foley is the guide for that. That'll be 10 o'clock at Laurel Hill East. There is a virtual hotspots and storied plots tour. You don't even have to leave the comfort of your home for this one. That is Tom Keels. Tom is a historian. He's written several books, and he gives a great tour. That's on Wednesday the 16th at 6.30 via Zoom. It is free. 
It is free, but we do ask you to register. And then Joan Zubris is giving a tour on Sunday the 20th called Giving Back, Philanthropists of Laurel Hill. That's at 1 p.m. Sunday the 20th, Laurel Hill East. There's a virtual death cafe on Tuesday the 8th. There is the annual Marine Corps anniversary service on Thursday the 10th at 11 a.m. I've been going for the last few years since I retired. It's a really nice service at the burial place of General Jacob Zylan, the first general officer in the Marine Corps. There is a fall foliage tour with our arborist at Laurel Hill East on Sunday the 13th at 1 p.m. If you are feeling energetic on the 13th, go to Marty's tour on surviving widowhood in the morning at 10, take an hour break for lunch, and then go on the fall foliage tour uh, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Sacred Spaces and Storied Places on Saturday the 19th, 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill West. And another Hot Spots tour, regular Hot Spots tour on Sunday the 25th at Laurel Hill East. Join us for the tours and see what all the shouting is about. They're really wonderful tours. I think you'll have a great time. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Dr. Charles Karsner Mills, 1845-1931. After James Garfield's death, his shooter, Charles Guiteau, was charged with murder. He was formally indicted on 14 October 1881, and his trial began on 17 November in Washington, D.C. Guiteau insisted on representing himself during the trial. The court appointed a lawyer who retired from the case in less than a week. Finally, Guiteau's brother-in-law, George Scoville, agreed to represent him, although his specialty was not criminal law, but land title examination. Guiteau tried to prove that he was temporarily insane at the time of the shooting because God had taken away his free will. The defense hired a leading alienist from New York City, Edward Charles Spitzka, who testified, Guiteau is not only now insane, but that he was never anything else. Alienist is a now archaic term for a psychiatrist or a psychologist who specializes in determining the sanity of a patient for legal purposes. If you read the transcript of the trial, which is available online, it shows that Guiteau was a narcissist with very poor self-control who had a difficult time making any coherent argument. Although Guiteau made one statement that rings true today. The doctors killed Garfield. I just shot him. Charles Guiteau was found guilty of murder on 25 January 1882, and he was sentenced to death. On pronouncing of the verdict and sentence, Guiteau let loose a string of obscenities and yelled at the jury, saying, You are all low, consummate jackasses. Guiteau was hanged on 30 June 1882, after reciting a poem he had written entitled, I Am Going to the Lordy. It was two days short of the first anniversary of his crime. In a letter to the editor of the medical record, dated 5 July 1882, preliminary notes of Guiteau's autopsy were revealed. The postmortem exam had occurred about three-quarters of an hour after his death, under the direction of the Assistant Surgeon of the Navy, Dr. Daniel Smith Lamb. 
The authors of the letter, Dr. William J. Morton and Dr. Charles L. Dana, said, quote, We were greatly assisted also by Dr. Charles K. Mills of Philadelphia, end quote. Mills had helped establish the state of Guiteau's mind at the trial and the state of his brain at the autopsy, which showed a thickened outer covering, the dura mater. This was blamed on neurosyphilis, probably contracted from a prostitute. Assassin Charles Guiteau's brain found its final resting place in a jar of alcohol at the Mutter Museum on 22nd Street. It is still there. Who was Dr. Charles K. Mills, the man who received thanks from the men who did the autopsy? Charles Kersner Mills was born on 4 December 1845 in the Falls of Schuylkill, located just outside of Philadelphia, before the consolidation of 1854 and the home of Laurel Hill East since 1836. He was the son of James and Lavinia Ann Fitzgerald Mills. His father was a manufacturer and a native of Wiltshire, England. Charles attended Central High School, but in 1862 his academic career was interrupted when he was called to serve the Union in the Civil War, as was the case for many young men that year at Central. It earned them the term the War Class. Charles was a private in the 8th Regiment of the Pennsylvania Militia, also known as the Blue Reserves and he participated in the emergency campaigns of 1862 and 1863. He was later commissioned First Corporal in Company I of the 33rd Regiment, and with them fought against Lee's army during their retreat from Gettysburg. He was discharged from the army later in 1863. The following year, Charles Mills graduated from Central High School as a member of the 44th class, ranking 5th out of 19 graduates. Before beginning college, he taught for several years at Philadelphia Public Schools. He went on to graduate from the medical department of the University of Pennsylvania in 1869 and received his PhD in philosophy two years later in 1871. He was 26 years old. In 1873, Dr. Mills married Clara Elizabeth Peel, 1851-1922, a descendant of Charles Wilson Peel and Coleman Sellers. In fact, their oldest son was Coleman Sellers Mills. He was a prominent architect born in 1878. Another child, Helen Elizabeth Mills Weisenberg, was a recognized artist during her time. Charles' earliest lectures on natural philosophy and physics were presented at the Wagner Free Institute of Science from 1870 to 1872, and they were widely attended. William Wagner, founder of the Institute, is interred at Laurel Hill West and will be included in a future podcast. Charles lectured on a variety of medical topics at many other places, St. Mark's Lutheran Church, the Philadelphia Young Men's Christian Association, the Franklin Institute, the Philadelphia School of Anatomy and Operative Surgery, although this was after David Hayes Agnew's time there. He also lectured at Jefferson Medical College and the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Unlike David Hayes Agnew, Mills had no problems teaching women. Early in his career, Charles was interested in the use of electricity for the treatment of various maladies, and he published several articles on this topic. 
1877, he became a guest lecturer in electrotherapeutics at the University of Pennsylvania. And seven years later, he was an examiner at the International Electrical Exhibition at the Franklin Institute. It was also in 1877 that he established the nervous ward of the Philadelphia General Hospital, the first neurological department of any general hospital in the country. It was while serving there that he was invited as an expert in the criminally insane to participate in the trial and the autopsy of Charles Guiteau. During the 1880s, Charles became increasingly involved in the study of nervous and mental diseases. And in 1883, there was a shift in his lecture topics at the University of Pennsylvania from electrotherapeutics to mental diseases. In 1884, he co-founded the Philadelphia Neurological Society with Francis Xavier Durkham, interred at Laurel Hill West, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast, Horton Sinclair, and J.T. Eskridge. He was also instrumental in the 1888 establishment of the Congress of American Physicians and Surgeons. From 1883 to 1885, and again in 1905, he served on an advisory board that surveyed almshouses in Philadelphia and assessed the treatment of the city's insane. The group's findings were appalling, and the study's results initiated major reform, culminating in the closing of the Blockley Almshouse in 1925. This was followed by the construction of new treatment facilities like the Philadelphia General Hospital and the Byberry Hospital for Mental Diseases. In 1893, Dr. Charles Mills became a professor of mental diseases and medical jurisprudence at the University of Pennsylvania, the same year that he served as honorary chair of the Diseases of the Mind and Nervous System for the Pan American Medical Congress. Dr. Mills was one of the founders of the Philadelphia Polyclinic, which later became Graduate Hospital, and he worked there as a professor of diseases of the mind and nervous system from 1883 to 1898. He was also a professor of nervous diseases at the Philadelphia Women's Medical College from 1891 to 1902. Many hospitals sought his expertise, and he served as a member of the consulting staff of the Orthopedic Hospital and Infirmary for Nervous Diseases, Howard Hospital, Misericordia, St. Timothy's, and the West Philadelphia Hospital for Women. He was also a member of the College of Physicians, home of the Mutter Museum. In 1901, Charles's title at the University of Pennsylvania changed to Clinical Professor of Nervous Disorders, and then again in 1903 to Professor of Neurology. It was also in 1901 that he contributed three articles on the sanity of William McKinley's assassin, Leon Chalgas. The Chalgosh Trial, a Unique Event, Philadelphia Medical Journal, 19 October 1901. Also in Philadelphia Medical Journal, 26 October 1901. And The Mental Condition of Political Assassins in the American Journal of Insanity, October 1901. In April of 1908, Charles attended a talk given to the Medical Jurisprudence Society of Philadelphia by world-famous alienist Dr. Henry Lethman, 
who had recently testified in the Harry K. Thaw murder case of Stanford White. In a fit of jealousy or possibly insanity, Thaw shot White in the face in front of nearly a thousand witnesses at the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden, killing him instantly. There is an excellent documentary called Fatal Beauty you can find on YouTube. Thaw's first trial for murder, the so-called Trial of the Century, ran from January to April 1907. The jurors deadlocked as to whether he was guilty of murder, temporarily insane, or guilty only of protecting the reputation of his wife, Evelyn Nesbitt, who claimed to have been seduced by White while she was a teenager. The second trial opened in January 1908, and Thaw was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, but he was sentenced to life in a secure psychiatric hospital in Fishkill, New York. There is ample information about this case available online. If it sounds familiar, E.L. Doctorow included it in his fictionalized history of the U.S. in the early 20th century, ragtime. Lefman, who had served as an expert witness at the second trial, lashed out at lawyers, stating, As I have seen the bar from the witness box, it has not appeared in a favorable light. His conclusion was that the average lawyer was an intellectual inferior. Dr. Charles K. Mills, who also testified as an expert witness, endorsed what Lefman had said. Another speaker said, The judge who ran the Thaw case was a joke, drawing the applause of many. That Thaw case was managed miserably, and the judge did not know what he was doing half of the time, so he left it to the lawyers to settle among themselves. Lefman also complained about the difficulty of getting his expert witness fee from the lawyers. Charles jumped in with an example when a county judge was amazed when he asked him for $500 for an opinion on the condition of a patient. Charles could not have known at the time that he would encounter the notorious Harry Thaw again many years later. Harry K. Thaw was released from the asylum in 1915. But in 1916, he was charged with the kidnapping, beating, and sexual assault of 19-year-old Frederick Gump of Kansas City, Missouri. His acquaintance with Gump dated to December 1915, and Thaw had worked to gain the trust of the Gump family. Thaw had enticed Gump to come to New York under the pretense of underwriting the teenager's enrollment at Carnegie Institute. Thaw reserved rooms for Gump at the Hotel McAlpin. The New York Times later reported that upon his arrival, Gump was confronted by, quote, Thaw armed with a short, stocky whip rushing for him. After the assault, Thaw fled to Philadelphia with the police in pursuit. When apprehended, he was found to have attempted suicide by slashing his throat. Initially, Thaw tried to bribe the Gump family, offering to pay them a half million dollars if they would drop all criminal charges against him. But ultimately, Thaw was arrested, jailed, and tried. He was found insane, and he was confined to Kirkbride Asylum in Philadelphia, where he was held under tight security. By this time in 1915, 
Mills had retired from the university to concentrate on his work with the Philadelphia Postgraduate School of Neurology, an institution he helped to create and which he believed would establish Philadelphia as an international center of postgraduate medical study. This innovative school used the wards of various city hospitals as their classrooms. Charles also shared his expertise with the U.S. Medical Reserve Corps in 1917 when he trained its members in the treatment of nervous disorders resulting from warfare, at that time called soldier's heart or neurasthenia. One of Charles Mills's saddest duties came when he wrote and read an obituary and a tribute for his student and close friend Major Alfred Reginald Allen at the December 1918 meeting of the Philadelphia Neurological Society. Dr. Allen was killed during the Battle of Moose Argonne, ironically from shrapnel to the brain. He was a skilled neurosurgeon and a brilliant researcher. Allen had joined the army as an infantryman. His death left a wife and preteen twins behind. Allen was father of Philadelphia's Savoy Opera Company, and he has a cenotaph, an empty grave, at Laurel Hill East, Section K. It's near the Patterson Lion. To learn more about Alfred Reginald Allen, again, become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and listen to a members-only podcast that I did earlier this year. In 1923, Dr. Charles K. Mills was elected president of the American Neurological Society. But in early 1924, Harry K. Thaw was once again brought before a court, and once again Dr. Mills judged him to be sane. Thaw regained his freedom in April 1924. On 28 May 1931, Charles Karsner Mills, M.D., died at his home at 2121 Delancey Street. He was 85 years old. He had nearly 40 honorary pallbearers at his interment at Laurel Hill East in Section S, Lots 61 and 62. Throughout his professional life, Mills kept scrapbooks. Eleven of them, dating from 1863 to 1931, are available for researchers from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. They occupy more than three linear feet. For many years, the Charles K. Mills Neurology Building straddled the corner of Civic Center Boulevard and University Avenue at the southwestern end of the Pennsylvania General Hospital complex. It was torn down a few years ago. Garfield Monument by Augustus St. Gaudens, 1848-1907. East River Drive below Girard Avenue Bridge. If you live in Philadelphia and you drive or you bike or you jog, you have probably passed it dozens, maybe hundreds of times. For more than 125 years, there has been a bust of James Abram Garfield in Fairmount Park on what is now Kelly Drive downstream from Brewery Hill Drive and the Girard Avenue Bridge. It is on a pedestal, and it's set back from the road 40 or 50 feet. There's a good possibility that you've never looked at it closely, because to do so would require you to park a few hundred feet away and then cautiously cross Kelly Drive. I have made that trek 
And I can tell you from personal experience that this is a marvelous work of art. The bust is bronze. It stands 42 and a half inches tall. It is thought to be modeled from Garfield's death mask. It sits on a granite pedestal 15 feet high, which in turn sits on a granite base one foot tall. There is a monumental figure of a woman with her left arm holding up a shield and her right hand holding a downward-facing sword. She stands 94 inches tall, 7 feet 10 inches. She represents the Republic. Her shield has a standing eagle at the top, holding in its claws the fasces and the olive branch. In the background is the inscription, E Pluribus Unum. The bold uppercase letters say, James Abram Garfield, President of the United States, MDCCCLXXXI. The work was by the Irish-born American sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens, and is probably one of his lesser-known works. At the time of its unveiling, on Saturday, 30 May 1896, St. Gaudens was 48 years old, mostly known for his statues of Civil War Generals John A. Logan in Chicago and William Tecumseh Sherman in Central Park, New York. The unveiling of his masterpiece, the Robert Gould Shaw Memorial on Boston Common, was still a year away. If Philadelphians had traveled to Manhattan, they would have seen his statue of Diana the Huntress on top of Madison Square Garden, where it resided from 1893 to 1925. Now, of course, you only have to walk up the grand steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art under the Sandy Calder Mobile ghost to see Diana in all her glory at the top of the stairs. She has resided in Philadelphia since 1932. You can also see the Pilgrim along Kelly Drive near Boathouse Row. After Garfield's death in September 1881, a fund was started the very next month to commission a statue of the martyred president. By 1885, the fund had swelled to $15,000. A five-man committee was chosen from the Fairmount Park Association. Two of its members are interred at Laurel Hill East. Charles Howell, who served as secretary, is interred in Section K in the shadow of the Fittler obelisk. And Thomas Hockley, who died four years before the statue was unveiled, is interred in Section T. The architectural firm of McKim, Mead, and White was chosen to design the plinth and the pedestal. They chose an OG cornice and dentals, a well-proportioned architrave and frieze, and columns with ionic capitals. The location was a natural amphitheater, surrounded by rocks and trees and a gentle mound half-circled by a boxwood hedge. The city waited ten years for its final product, and there was much back-and-forth discussion between the commission and the sculptor. Many angry letters were sent. Finally, on the day of the unveiling, James Garfield's son Henry was invited to pull the rope. It seemed like all of Philadelphia participated. Both electric and calcium lights were used to make the area by the river look bright as day. Dignitaries gathered at 7.30 p.m. by the docks at the waterworks, where a fleet of small steamers festooned with Japanese lanterns, flags, and bunting awaited them. On the signal of a bomb burst, 
The flotilla steamed slowly upriver, past the boathouses, all a mass of fire, and barges made brilliant by countless lights dotting the river. The Girard Avenue Bridge stood out in especially brilliant beauty, and fire-kissed fountains shot prismatic sprays upward. Some of the VIPs included both St. Gaudens and a representative from the architectural firm, James McManus, president of the Park Commission, Mr. John H. Converse, president of the Art Association. He's interred at Laurel Hill West, Woodlawn 40. Mayor Charles F. Warwick was also there. He's interred in the Edgewood section of Laurel Hill West. Other guests included Simon Gratz, president of the Board of Education, Laurel Hill East, Chapel 3, Mrs. Persifor Fraser, Laurel Hill East, G161, artist Emily Sartain, Bryn Mawr College President M. Carey Thomas, and many others. When they reached the statue, it was covered with a large cloth shroud. The mood was boisterous. Strings played, singers sang, and Mayor Warwick made a speech. Whether this monument shall be for good or for ill depends upon you and me and all the dwellers in our land. To realize this, and to devote ourselves now and always to the largest welfare of our fellow men are the inspirations that occasions like this should make burn in our hearts a living and quenchless fire. No one of us or any other can say that the inspiration and the responsibility duties it implies are not for him. Every member of society is a potent factor, whether he will or no, in its progress. For it is the great mass of individual examples and effort that achieve great results. Other speeches followed. In an autocratic government where the people are crushed under the iron heel of a despotic power, an assassination of its ruler seems a logical sequence and a natural result of tyrannic crime and wrong. But in our country, where freedom exists, where our people under the law and its protection are happy, and where there are no intolerable wrongs or insufferable conditions which would warrant them, these national tragedies seem so unnatural that they produce a profound shock. The glory of our institutions lies in the fact that they do so hedge the president with the affections of the people, that he can do no wrong or injustice, as finds a remedy only in assassination, but patriotically can only do those things that tend to advance the best interests of the people and preserve intact our national integrity. Finally, after all the speeches, Henry Garfield, son of the slain president, stepped forward and grasped the rope. Do I pull hard? Yes, pull very hard. Mr. Garfield pulled hard, and the statue of his martyred father came into view. As the orchestra played America, fireworks filled the sky, and the whistles on the boats in the Schuylkill added to the cacophony, which could be heard for miles around. After the ceremony, the special guests returned to the city by boat, and hundreds of citizens streamed around the statue, admiring its beauty. Augustus St. Gaudens would further burnish his reputation with the haunting Adams Memorial in Rock Creek Park, Washington, for his friends Clover and Henry Adams. 
He designed the $20 St. Gaudens Double Eagle Gold Piece for the U.S. Mint, which many numismatists consider one of the most beautiful American coins ever issued, as well as the $10 Indian Head Gold Eagle. Both of them were minted from 1907 until 1933. His former home is now the St. Gaudens Historic Park in New Hampshire. Oh, and the architecture firm of McKim, Mead, and White, which built that platform. They produced buildings across the country. Pennsylvania Station in New York City, the Boston Public Library, the National Museum of American History, and Madison Square Garden. Yes, the White from McKim, Mead, and White was Stanford White, the man assassinated by Harry K. Thaw in 1906, who was declared not insane in 1908, 1916, and 1924 by Charles Karsner Mills. In the mid-November episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell you about physician and philanthropist Bushrod Washington James, an accomplished ophthalmologist in life and a generous benefactor in death. He was a pacifist who served as a medic during the Civil War, and he spent years crusading for women's suffrage. The Bushrod Library on Castor Avenue carries his name, as does Bushrod Park in Oakland, California, where Ricky Henderson and Frank Robinson played in their youth. Expect that podcast to be released on or about November 11th. The December edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be about a few Philadelphia tobacconists. Cuban immigrant Juan Portuando, whose smokes were considered some of the finest in the land and had many, many imitators. Otto Eisenlohr, whose best-selling Cinco was the finest five-cent cigar around. Henrietta Garrett, who inherited her husband's fortune from the snuff business but neglected to make a will, leading to literally thousands of desperate people claiming to be relatives after her death. And Caleb Milne, who rented the fourth floor of his building on Washington Avenue to a cigar-making firm. In 1902, a false fire alarm led to panic among mostly teenage immigrant girls, and eight of them were killed in the crush while trying to escape. Four fascinating stories tied to the tobacco business in a podcast due on or about November 25th called Cigars, Cigarettes, I will probably release it a day early, so you can listen to it while you're washing or drying the Thanksgiving dishes. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. Street parking on Ridge is not recommended. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transport is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk 
or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up the Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are now open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. and will be until March. We welcome, as always, dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are open for historic tours. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, you'll have an opportunity for several members-only special tours each year, including some Inside the Mausoleum tours, and at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. If not, until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. There was a lot of material on Samuel Jackson Randall, but still no official biography. If you are a historian or you know someone who is a historian looking for a good topic, there's one right there. The man who sort of saved the country in 1877 after that contentious 1876 election. The two books on the 1876 election uh, that I used, one is called By One Vote, the Disputed Presidential Election of 1876. That was written by Michael F. Holt. That is from the University Press of Kansas, 2008. And the other is called Centennial Crisis, the Disputed Election of 1876 by William H. Rehnquist. That's right, the Supreme Court Justice. I think he wrote it as an explanation for what they did in 2000. This was published by Vintage Books in 2004. There's an older article called The Hayes-Tilden Disputed Presidential Election of 1876. That's written by Paul Leland Hayworth, H-A-W-O-R-T-H. That is published by the Burroughs Brothers Company, Cleveland, MCMVI. So that's 1906 is the publication date of that. There is a graduate thesis called The Political Career of Samuel Jackson Thesis by Albert Virgil House, Jr. It was submitted to the Graduate School of the University of Wisconsin, partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Doctor of Philosophy, and the date on this is August 13, 1934. It's the closest we have to a biography of Randall. There is an article by Albert V. House called Men, Morals, and Manipulation, in the Pennsylvania Democracy of 1875. 
This comes from Pennsylvania History, 1956. Northern Congressional Democrats as Defenders of the South During Reconstruction, also by Albert V. House, Jr. This is from the Journal of Southern History, February 1940, Volume 6, Number 1, pages 44 through 71. And the Samuel J. Randall Papers by Thomas R. Adams and John Foster. This is from Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, January 1954, Volume 21, Number 1, pages 45 to 54. Plus there were a couple of newspaper articles. As far as David Hayes Agnew, there is an early publication I found online called Was Guiteau Sane and Responsible for the Assassination of President Garfield? This is by Theodore W. Fisher, M.D., from the University of Pennsylvania. It was printed, it's from the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal of June 29, 1882. So it was barely a year after the assassination. Then there is The Man Who Murdered Garfield from Proceedings of the Massachusetts Historical Society, October 41 through May 41, volume 67, pages 452 to 489. There is a nice biography of David Hayes Agnew written by his nephew, J. Howe Adams, M.D., that was written after, shortly after the good doctor's death. It is available online in PDF format, uh, in PDF format, and is pretty much hagiography. It doesn't have a bad word to say about him. There's also a mini biography by Edward Martin, M.D., F.A.C.S., Philadelphia, from Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics, February 1923, pages 295. To 299. That's just simply called D. Hayes Agnew. There's a memoir of D. Hayes Agnew, M.D. LLD, that was prepared at the request of and read before the College of Physicians, Philadelphia, January 4, 1893. That was also available online. Finally, D. Hayes Agnew, M.D. LLD, biographical sketch by his pupil, friend, and assistant. DeForest Willard, M.D. Dr. Willard is interred at Laurel Hill East. This was read by invitation before the Philadelphia County Medical Society on April 13, 1892. As far as Charles Karsner Mills, there is a terrific little book that's available in PDF online from 1882. It's called The Life and Great Trial of the Assassin Guteau. It really gets down to the nitty-gritty. It was published by Barclay and Company in Washington, D.C. There's an article called Dementia Americana, Mark Twain, Wapping Alice, and the Harry K. Thaw Trial that I found really interesting. That's by Susan Gilman, Critical Inquiry, Winter, 1988, Volume 14, Number 2, pages 296 and 314. Why Support a Women's Medical College, Philadelphia's Early Male Medical Pro-Feminists. It's from the Bulletin of the History of Medicine by Stephen J. Peitzman, Fall of 2003, Volume 77, Number 3, pages 576 to 599. Peitzman is also author of the wonderful book, A New and Untried Course, 
Women's Medical College and Medical College of Pennsylvania, 1850-1998. That was published by Rutgers University Press in 2000. Copyright by the Alumni and Alumni Association of MCP Hahnemann School of Medicine. Dr. Mills' obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer was informative. That was published 29 May 1931, page 3. As far as discussions about the sanity of Harry K. Thaw, I mentioned a couple of documentaries that are available on YouTube. There was also an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, 21 April 1908, called Lawyers Flayed by Dr. Lethman in Public Paper, where he talks about how essentially lawyers were of lower intelligence when he testified in the Thaw trial. And then, Neurasthenia in Pennsylvania, a Perspective on the Origins of American Psychotherapy, 1870-1910. to The author is Francis G. Gosling, from the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, April 1985, Volume 40, Number 2, pages 188-206. to And since I mentioned that, I might as well mention From Paralysis to Fatigue, A History of Psychosomatic Illness in the Modern Era by Edward Shorter. That is from the Free Press, a division of Macmillan Incorporated, New York, and it was published or copyrighted in uh, 1992. As far as the statue of Garfield, I got a lot of that information from contemporary newspaper reports in 1896. But my primary source was a book that I absolutely love. It's called Sculpture of a City. I've talked about it before when I talked about the Calders. Uh, The subtitle is Philadelphia's Treasures in Bronze and Stone. It is by the Fairmount Park Art Association, published by Walker Publishing Company in New York in 1974. It is no longer available... Um, except through second-hand bookstores. What I found most interesting and most useful was a chapter on the Garfield Monument. It was by John Drifhout, D-R-Y-F-H-O-U-T, and in this book it goes from page 180 through 187. And the combination of this and the Newspaper articles, I thought, made for a pretty interesting section. Again, if you visit the Garfield Monument, please be careful crossing Kelly Drive. Okay, that's it. Until next time, maybe I'll see you at the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.